Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. There are a lot of weird fan theories out there. Some are kind of interesting, like, for instance, Ferris Bueller being a figment of Cameron's imagination, and Ferris is just this cool guy that Cameron makes up to be friends with, or that Disney's Aladdin actually takes place after the apocalypse, thousands of years in the future, in a desert land, and that explains all of the genie's 20th century pop culture references, or that Jar Jar Binks is a Sith Lord. Um, actually, that one's kind of that one's kind of lame. The fan theory I want to talk about today, though, is different from your run-of-the-mill internet idea that tries to explain or make interesting uh, some thing of pop culture. Uh, today, I want to talk about a fan theory that predates the internet and has actually been taken somewhat seriously by scholars, critics, academics, and teachers. Indeed, the first place I heard of this fan theory was from one of my high school history teachers, and I heard it echoed again by political science professors when I was in college. And the fan theory is this. L. Frank Baum's novel, The Wizard of Oz, is an elaborate metaphor for American populism and monetary policy at the end of the 1800s. Yes, the theory goes, that thing with the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, the Cowardly Lion, Dorothy, Toto, the Wicked Witch, the Good Witch, that's all an elaborate metaphor about American currency, populism, presidential politics, and the plight of ordinary people at the closing of the 19th century. And this fan theory, which again is pretty widespread, usually identifies Dorothy as a common person, the Scarecrow with agrarian workers, that's kind of a no-brainer, if you will. Uh, the Tin Man, or Tin Woodman, as he's referred to in the book, as industrial laborers. I mean, he's made of metal. And, and those all make sense. And the Cowardly Lion? Well, he's Democratic presidential candidate and populist politician William Jennings Bryan, of course. And, supposedly, Oz is all about metal money. Gold and silver cash. So some background on all this. In 1896, the United States was still on the gold standard, and the gold standard, it was blamed for all manner of economic ills that affected the common people. And one of the proposed fixes for the problems that were perceived to have been caused by the gold standard was silver dollar coinage, having that also be included in the currency system on top of paper money, which would be backed by gold. Uh, this movement, called bimetallism, you know, called for silver in addition to gold, and it was a popular talking point for populist politicians at the time. In 1896, William Jennings Bryant, again, he is supposed to be the Cowardly Lion, he made a big deal of this in a speech at the Democratic National Convention, where he blamed a gold standard for deflation, falling commodity prices, and the plight of struggling agrarian workers. This speech, it's really well known. It's his Cross of Gold speech. And here's the big finisher from his kind of fiery almost sermon advocating bimetallism. Brian said, quote, If they dare to come out in the open field and defend a gold standard as a good thing, we shall fight them to the utmost, having behind us the producing masses of the nation and the world, having behind us the commercial interest and the laboring interest and all the toiling masses, we shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Unquote. 
that is pretty powerful stuff. And also, you know, he's kind of comparing the working class to Jesus, which is weird, but effective. And gold and silver, they feature prominently in The Wizard of Oz. So there's Yellow Brick Road, obviously. And then there are Dorothy's Magical Shoes. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, aren't they ruby slippers? Well, yes, in the Judy Garland movie, they are ruby slippers. But in the original L. Frank Baum novel, they were silver, not ruby. So you've got gold, you've got silver, and some people have even read into the title itself. Uh, Oz, O-Z, is said to be short for ounce, the standard measurement for gold and silver, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Where does this kind of weird, goofy theory come from? Well, it comes from a high school history teacher named Henry Littlefield, who in 1964 wrote an article for the American Quarterly titled The Wizard of Oz, Parable on Populism. I'll let Littlefield speak for himself. Here he is on The Tin Woodman. Quote, The Tin Woodman, whom Dorothy meets on her way to the Emerald City, had been put under a spell by the Witch of the East. Once an independent and hard-working human being, the woodman found that each time he swung his axe, it chopped off a different part of his body. Knowing no other trade, he worked harder than ever, for luckily, in Oz, tin smiths can repair such things. Soon, the woodman was all tin. In this way, eastern witchcraft dehumanized a simple laborer so that the faster and better he worked, the more quickly he became a kind of machine. Here is a populist view of evil Eastern influences on honest labor, which could hardly be more pointed, unquote. By the way, when Littlefield says Eastern, he's referring to the Eastern seaboard, uh, New York and such, not, you know, China. But, oh my God, that sounds like some kind of theory that would be described as mind-blowing by Reddit or the like, except 50 years before mind-blowing fan theories on Reddit. Uh, here's Littlefield again on the power of silver, which a lot of populists saw as their savior. Quote, on the next to last page of the book, Baum has Glinda, the good witch, tell Dorothy, your silver shoes will carry you over the desert. If you had known their power, you could have gone back to your Aunt M the very first day you came to this country. All you have to do is knock the heels together three times and command the shoes to carry you wherever you wish to go. William Jennings Bryant never outlined the advantages of the silver standard any more effectively. Unquote. Littlefield also identifies the Emerald City with Washington, D.C., uh, that's kind of an easy one, and the Wicked Witch of the West with the harshness of Western frontier life and nature in particular. Uh, he describes the witch as being analogous to all of the dangers that common yeoman farmers would face as they expanded into the frontier and tried to battle, you know, avalanches and snowstorms and wolves and that type of thing. And this is sort of uncomfortable and racist. He also identifies the flying monkeys with Native Americans. Yeah. That, that's awkward. As for the big climax when the Wicked Witch of the West melts, Littlefield sees allegory there, too, quoting him again. Dorothy destroys the evil witch by angrily dousing her with a bucket of water. Water, that precious commodity, which the drought-ridden farmers on the Great Plains needed so badly, and which, if correctly used, could create an agricultural paradise, or at least dissolve a wicked witch. Plain water brings an end to malign nature in the West. Unquote. Woodlefield also called the second Oz book a blatant satire on feminism and the suffragette movement. But 
that's beyond the scope of this particular podcast. So yeah, he is a guy who, you know, was able to see connections wherever he wanted to see them. Now, if Littlefield was the only one who was writing about this, then that would be one thing. This episode would just be me picking on one guy with kind of eccentric ideas about a fantasy novel. And that's sort of punching down. It's hardly fair. But Littlefield isn't the only one who got into this interpretation of Oz. After his initial 1964 article, this theory got around. Other writers expanded on it, and more articles in more journals elaborated on it throughout the 20th century. So initially, a lot of these articles cited Littlefield and critiqued him. But eventually, it took on a life of its own. By the time a 1988 Utney Reader article came out called Exposing Oz as a Parable on Populism, it didn't cite Littlefield at all. It didn't mention him at all. They were just talking about this whole Oz populism thing like it was a given. It was just a fairly ordinary interpretation of the novel. And that continued up to the point where this theory was repeated to me by my high school history teacher. I don't think that The Wizard of Oz is in fact meant to be an allegory about populism or monetary policy, for a few reasons. Uh, the veracity of this whole fan theory, it's disputed by a number of things. Uh, one of the big ones, probably the biggest ones, is Baum's politics. Uh, according to his biographers, he seems to have been only mildly political throughout his life. We know that he did indeed march in a parade in support of Democrat William Jennings Bryan, the supposed cowardly lion, but he also wrote some pretty bad poetry in favor of President William McKinley. So brace yourself, everybody. This is L. Frank Baum writing, actually, non-allegorically, about politics. Here is some poetry by the Wizard of Oz guy about how awesome McKinley is. Quote, When McKinley gets a chair, boys, there'll be a jollification throughout our happy nation and contentment everywhere. Great will be our satisfaction when the honest money faction seats McKinley in the chair. No more the ample crops of grain that in our granaries have lain will seek a purchaser in vain, or be the mercy of the bull or bear. Our merchants won't be trembling at the silverites dissembling when McKinley gets the chair. When McKinley gets the chair, boys, the magic word protection will banish all dejection and free the working man from every care. We will gain the world's respect when it knows our coins correct and McKinley's in the chair. Unquote. I am kind of a little sorry that I just subjected you to that. So, uh, that is L. Frank Baum writing about how awesome William McKinley is, and also writing about, and also writing specifically in support of McKinley and his gold standard. He is disparaging what he calls the Silverites in that pretty bad poem. So L. Frank Baum is hardly being a populist there, and this is a guy who also ran a Republican newspaper. Uh, even though he did at one point support William Jennings Bryan, he's not a populist. He's not writing a book that's a stealth treatise in favor of populism. Um, there are some people who say, well, maybe he was writing a parody of populism. That's not consistent, though, with Littlefield's initial argument. And I don't think there's anything about the Oz narrative in itself that is parodic of populism. I don't think it makes fun of populists, if it says anything about it, which it doesn't. Uh, another thing why I don't think that Oz is allegorical is because L. Frank Baum really didn't care about the internal logic of the world. If you're going to write a good allegory, if you're going to write a good satire, then people should know its allegory and know its satire. For instance, 
If you know about the Russian Revolution and you know about the politics in Russia uh, just following the Russian Revolution, then the allegory in Animal Farm is pretty easy to follow. You know who the various animals are supposed to represent. The horse that goes to the glue factory, he is the exploited working class. The dogs that the pigs enlist, they are members of the Tsarist army that, you know, the Soviets start using. Uh, Napoleon the pig is Stalin, and so on. It is very, very easy and consistent. Oz isn't. With Oz, there's no real consistent internal logic. Oz, continuity-wise, is something of a nightmare. If you're somebody like me, who likes big series where stuff's all connected, and there's lots of, like, good continuity nods and Easter eggs all over the thing, then Oz is maddening. For instance, in the original book, the Emerald City isn't really emerald. It only looks green because everyone wears green goggles. Later on, it's all emerald. It actually is all green. And I don't think Baum really cared about making the world actually work, or having any internal logic, or having things mean things, I think that he was just pumping out books. I think he was the type of writer who thought that if something was cool, he wrote it. There did not seem to be a lot going on behind the scenes. Another big reason why I don't think that Oz is implicitly about money is that sometimes the text is explicitly about money. Money does come up in the Oz books, and when it does, descriptions of it do not jive with late 1800s populism. So, writing in the Journal of Economic Education, Bradley Hansen had this to say about the economy of Oz and populism. Quote, Baum's descriptions of the economy of Oz are also problematic for a populist interpretation. Consider, for example, the dialogue between the Shaggy Man and the Tin Woodman about the Tin Woodman's castle from The Road to Oz, the fifth book in the series. And now Hansen is quoting Baum. It must have cost a lot of money, remarked the Shaggy Man. Money? Money in Oz? cried the Tin Woodman. What a queer idea. Did you suppose we are so vulgar as to use money here? Why not? asked the shaggy man. If we use money to buy things with instead of love and kindness and the desire to please one another, then we should be no better than the rest of the world, declared the tin woodman. Fortunately, money is not known in the land of Oz at all. We have no rich and no poor. For what one wishes, the others all try to give him, in order to make him happy, and no one in Oz cares to have more than he can use. Going back to Hansen again. Hardly the views of a sophisticated monetary theorist. It seems easier to apply utopian interpretation of the Oz economy than a populist one. It sounds more like a household economy in which the relationship between the ruler and the ruled is the same as between parent and child. Unquote. I don't think that L. Frank Baum wrote the Oz books as any kind of stealth treatise on populism or free silver or anything like that. But even though I don't subscribe to his theories, I kind of love that it exists. Uh, the human capacity to overinterpret things and to see things that aren't there and to invent creative BS is kind of amazing to me. And even though I do not subscribe to it or agree with it, I also admire it in a certain way. I kind of have to admire the sort of weird agenda-specific reading it takes to make a fantasy novel come out and be about monetary policy. And then there's another idea that it might not matter what Baum thought authors create, but they don't get to say what their work means. I don't think it's too radical to say now that the act of reading or viewing is also an act of interpretation and therefore creation. I am not going to say that anything goes and all interpretations of a thing are equally valid, 
but there is something to be said for readers deciding on their own what meaning a given piece of media has. Trying to find the true, actual, real meaning of a work in the biography of the author or the views of the author, that will only take you so far. The reader's experience and interpretation matters as well. And yes, I know, I'm echoing Roland Bart here. I know that this is the whole death of the author argument, but that kind of is germane here. Readers do have a certain authority when they read, and they are allowed to bring things to a text. If I can leave you with one last thing, though, it's this. Return to Oz is a great movie. Seriously, Return to Oz, it is totally rad. It is a 1985 kind of sequel to the first film. It's also kind of a sequel to the books, and it is scary. The villain is called the Gnome King, and there is this, like, princess who takes her head off and has a whole bunch of heads in the case, and at one point she wants to take Dorothy's head, and there's a pumpkin guy, and there's a robot. It's amazing. It scared the crap out of me as a kid, and you should go watch it if you haven't already. Return to Oz. Go watch it. Also watch The Wiz. That is also good. This show is ad-free. It is ad-free because you support it. Go to interestingtimespodcast.com, sign up for a monthly donation. That would be excellent of you. Uh, also, I love hearing what you think. Uh, find a podcast on iTunes. Uh, give us a rating and review. Let us know what you think of the show. You can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert. Uh, I am on social media, Twitter and Tumblr. Uh, I am at Joe Streckert on Twitter and joestreckert.tumblr.com on, well, Tumblr. Thank you guys very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye.